This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and joining me today is Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. And Tom, US markets in particular will be glad to see the back of January. Yes, the Nasdaq narrowly missed out on its worst January ever as investors considered what interest rate hikes might do to the value of the tech stocks that dominate the index. But despite that concern, we've had more upbeat updates from those mega cats with Google owner Alphabet throwing a massive stock split into the mix too. Yeah, we're also going to be digging into the incendiary report on working conditions from Rio Tinto, which seem to be the perfect example of how to couch bad news because the stock ended on the top of the FTSE 100 the day the report came out. And we've also got the latest of our round the world chats and our very own Laith Caliph has been speaking to AJ Bell's chief investment officer about the future of those volatile cryptocurrencies. Plus a pensions corner with Tom Selby. Yes, that's right. I'll be looking at combining your retirement pots, a question I get asked a lot. Um, I'll be looking at whether you should do it and how to go about it as well. And Jenny Owens got me wishing that I still had my metal detector with a story of a retired detectorist heading out for one last hunt and making a mint. So stay tuned for that. Um, But we've got absolutely loads to get through. Uh, I'm not going to waste any time, Tom. Let's crack straight on with markets because volatile, that was certainly the word that I used a lot in January. Are things going to start to settle down a bit now? Yeah, thanks, Danny. Um, Let's hope so. It's (laughs) certainly been a tricky start to 2022 for investors. You see many popular funds and stocks performing poorly and perhaps most notably, as you said, the the technology sector. Now, in the last few days, we've seen a bit of a bounce back and that's partly been driven by some strong earnings from the big tech names of which we'll we'll touch on a bit more in a moment. But I think it's worth pointing out before anybody gets too relaxed that the driver for a rotation out of some of these, particularly the more speculative and pre-profit tech firms, is still there. And that's that's higher interest rates. And just very quickly and keeping things quite simple, if interest rates go up, this affects how the future cash flows of those businesses are valued today. And it means that they arguably compare a bit less favorably with more mature businesses, which are already generating plenty of profit and cash. Um, something that's actually helped the FTSE 100 outperform some other global indices year to date. And I'd say as well, you know, it's maybe a bit early to write off the kind of rally for value stocks. And it was interesting um, to see Vodafone become the latest big London listed name to find an activist investor on its register. You know, this is a reflection that there's there's lots of kind of these op- opportunistic operators seeing businesses where there are levers to pull to try and unlock value um, in the UK. Um, A company, though, that certainly doesn't appear to need any help to realise its potential is Alphabet, um, the owner of Google, at least judging by its latest set of earnings, which were very, well, spectacular, really. They comfortably beat analysts' expectations um, and really demonstrated the reach of its advertising across its Google search engine, across YouTube and its other platforms. Um, One fact that I thought was quite notable is that it actually generated more revenue from YouTube advertising in the fourth quarter the Netflix entire revenue for the same period. And given Alphabet has very limited cost in terms of the creating the content that's on YouTube, it, you know, it looks relative to Netflix like a real winner in the streaming stakes. And with all the cash that that 
<clears throat> advertising um, is is generating. It can invest in areas like artificial intelligence, and that's kind of solidifying its market position. I guess if you were looking for one fly in the ointment, it's this threat that regulators might look to clip its wings, given just how dominant it is. And there have also been some um, issues over privacy. You've got some US states suing the company. Yeah, I mean, the results were boosted by consumers getting back to searching for stuff to buy and stuff to do. Of course, so many people over lockdowns got used to uh, online shopping. But when people were able to go back out again, that is where they went. And, you know, we had marketing budgets which had been absolutely slashed by uh, retailers, the financial sector, entertainment and travel firms during the pandemic, you know, they were upping business, chasing those eyeballs. And also sales grew in its cloud business as well, though that bit was still loss making. Though, as you say, you know, the rest of the business more than made up for it and losses for the year were wiped out by this update. So this is really going to help boost consumer confidence, um, as you were saying, Tom, um, Advertising business is thriving, but with this announcement today came an update that really helped push shares up, almost 9% in pre-opening trade. And that is news of a massive stock split. 20 to 1 is the number it's looking at, which is huge when you think about the split that Apple did in the summer of 2020, which was just 4 to 1, and um, Tesla's was just 5 to 1. Now, the aim of this is to bring down the cost of individual shares by splitting each into pieces. So in this case, 20 pieces. So instead of one share being worth $2,752.88, which was just before we recorded this, I checked the price, each share will be worth, on today's price, just $137.64. And of course, that makes it suddenly much more attainable for the average retail investors. Um, it does depend, you know, upon shareholders giving the green light to the plan in July. But Tom, I've been taking a look into this. And when Apple and Tesla both did this uh, in summer 2020, the share price soared in the wake of the announcement. Apple gained over $500 billion in value in the month after it announced the split. And Tesla's stock soared by 80% in the 20 days after the announcement. So being able to actually, as a retail investor, get hold of these tech stocks, it's been out of pocket, out of reach for a lot of people for a long time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's it's important to make the point it's it's about accessibility more than affecting the actual value of kind of your holding, you know, so you previously you might have, well, you might not even have been able to buy one share, but if you had enough to buy one share, you know, you, you're going to, there's no difference to the value of those shares. It's just, it's just the actual price of the shares themselves, but undoubtedly it makes it more accessible um, for, for private investors. And, and certainly, like you said, it, it did seem to make a difference with, with those, um, with Tesla and, and Apple in the past. So, I just wanted to mention before we move on a couple of really other positive trading updates that have caught my eye. First, Sony overnight. It announced a 32% rise in quarter three operating profit. A lot of thanks goes to their picture division. You know, people have been going back to the cinema and the pictures division revenues doubled and Spider-Man had a lot to do with that. Have you seen the film yet? I haven't, no. 
Now, I must admit, it's it's not one on my list, though my eldest daughter has been out to see it. But clearly, you know, it, it broke post-pandemic box office records. And Sony's also getting into this fight to try and dominate the game sector. It's announced a deal to snap up Bungie Inc., which was the creator of Halo, the video game. And the boss has also said, look, expect more acquisitions for its PlayStation offer. But one thing that's caught my eye recently from Sony is the plan to move into EVs. And the boss has said that he thinks that the humble car will go from just being a transportation machine to being an entertainment space. And when you think about all the things that we do in a car now, if I, I travel with kids and they're on their, you know, their games and they're on their phones and they're watching films. Do they, Danny? <laughs> Don't. tapes for a long journey or you know it's um it's quite a departure it, it is yeah i mean we did try and sort of get them to play the the sort of snooker game when they were younger and they, they quite liked that you know spot a red car spot a pink car yeah but uh no not anymore um and since we're talking about, you know, big news, I also wanted to mention ExxonMobil because it posted its largest profit in seven years, thanks in a huge part to those soaring energy prices. The company has announced it's going to use some of its windfall to start a $10 billion share repurchase program. And, and shares are up 32% since the start of the year. And since I've been running numbers, I can also show you, tell you that shares in mining giant Rio Tinto are up almost 10% since the start of the year. And what surprised me is that the company even topped the FTSE 100 gainers yesterday, despite publishing an absolutely astonishing report into workplace culture, Tom. Yeah, sometimes the epithet jaw-dropping is overused, but in this case, it definitely felt appropriate. Um so the report landed yesterday and it, it was looking at kind of workplace culture and based on a, a survey of, of Rio Tinto's workforce and it covered the last five years and some of its contents were really disturbing. I mean, extensive evidence of, of bullying, systematic bullying, sexism, racism, even um, sexual assault. So it was it was a really shocking report. And I think what was interesting about the market reaction was it, it, the company was being kind of almost given immediate credit for, you know, taking the bull by the horns, I guess, and actually addressing the issue. Um, it probably helped that the current CEO, um, Jacob Stausholm, um, has only actually been in place for the last 12 months. And the report made mention of a, of a slight improvement um, in in the way the company um, operates over that period. Um, so I think, you know, that that meant that the market was more willing to give it credit for, for getting ahead of these problems. Um, I mean, it will still take time. You know, they, these look like very deep lying, sort of deep rooted issues, and it will still take time to address them. Um, some listeners might remember that the previous management had to depart under a cloud of controversy after Rio's operations in Australia led to the destruction of two ancient and sacred Aboriginal caves. So it's, it's not got a hu hugely sort of... Um, encouraging track record and i think there's some important context here as well in that the mining sector is looking to become a bit more kind of esg friendly which sort of befits its role in providing the metals and minerals that are required to tackle climate change by moving away from fossil fuels and towards areas like renewables and electric vehicles and i think you know this this rio report reflects the fact that there's going to be a 
a much harsher spotlight on the industry's working practices. And the comments from the former Australian Sex Discrimination Commissioner, um, Elizabeth Broderick, who led the review, kind of gave the company some credit for its transparency. And I think that pr- perhaps suggests that other miners are yet to go through their own reckoning on this on this front. So I think it'll be worth watching the space um, to see if there are further developments. Yeah, because a, a lot of these businesses, as you say, are under huge pressure to improve their ESG credentials. You know, a, a lot of fund managers now are looking very hard at those before they make a decision about whether to include mining stocks in their fund portfolios. And I would imagine that there'll be a lot of eyes on the way that Rio Tinto handled this and the reaction from investors. And a lot of people, I think, will be using it as, as a blueprint for uh, for the future. Although, uh, as I was saying yesterday, I hope that uh, there aren't too many companies that have got the kind of skeletons in the closet that Rio Tinto certainly seems to have. Um, But following on from uh, that, the final part in our four-part series, looking at investing in different parts of the world. And as luck would have it, we're turning to Asia. It's obviously a huge and diverse region. The largest stock market by valuation is Japan with its flagship Nikkei 225 index. However, Japanese shares are often seen as being in a different category than those in the rest of Asia because it's a developed economy and most of the rest of the region falls into the emerging markets category. Now, beyond Japan, China dominates with several stock market indices acting as benchmarks for its performance, including the Hong Kong Stock Exchange's Hang Seng, as well as mainland China's Shanghai's SSE Composite and the CSI 300 indices. The Indian market, represented by the Sensex Index, has grown rapidly in the last decade as it plays catch up with China. And there are plenty other smaller markets like Vietnam coming up on the rails too. Um, It's often more volatile than markets in the US and Europe. And Asia has also traditionally been more closely associated with sectors like commodities, industrials, financials, infrastructure. But there is increasing innovation taking place in these economies now. And some of its leading tech firms are starting to rival those in the West. So with that in mind... um, Dan went to speak to Ewan Markson-Brown, manager of the Crux Asia ex-Japan fund. Um, And he told him what investors can find in the broader Asian market space, whether there are any lower risk opportunities on offer and his view on the outlook for 2022. So Ewan, if someone wants to invest in Asia, there's sort of some obvious places like Japan has this reputation for electronics and robotics and China's perhaps known for internet stocks. So what else is on offer to investors if they look at the broader Asian market space? Thank you. Um, we see Asia as far bigger than just China. Um, there are a lot of other very interesting, fast growing companies and sectors and industries uh, within the broad Asian region. Um, I'll just give you an example. So Vietnam, um, this is a a country which we're really interested in. And it's off benchmark. It's still quite small. But what we've learned over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years is that there's a very few number of countries which managed to go from effectively emerging to developed. And they've all had one thing in common, and that's the ability to grow their exports by more than 6% per annum in their fastest growing phase. And Vietnam's been growing its exports by double digits for the last 10, 15 years. It's got a a young, dynamic population. It's got a great coastline and really benefits from that China plus one 
uh, in terms of manufacturing and FDR and FDI's going in medicine. I, th I think it's a really interesting place to invest today. Um, maybe just give you another country, uh, Indonesia. Um, Indonesia has been pretty much on everyone's radar for about 10 years. Um, but there was some interesting top-down reforms happened during COVID, which I think everyone's just missed. You know, they've done a labor reform, they've done a land reform. Um, and there's a lot of FDR, a lot of investment going to Indonesia at the moment. And with high commodity prices, which I think might be sustained, we think there's a chance for an infrastructure-led boom, which will lead into growth in the consumer in Indonesia over the next three, five years. What are the main industries that you invest in across your different crux funds that have got Asian exposure and perhaps why are you attracted to these areas? Yeah, so we currently overweight uh, materials, which you know, this is really the commodity side. Um, but why am I excited about this? It's, it's the electric vehicle revolution and the revolution we're seeing in renewable energy. Um, I can't say we love the battery metals, copper, nickel and lithium. And why? Because we are at that inflection point in electrical vehicle uh, adoption globally. And we've seen the numbers by somewhere between 2030 and 2035, all new car sales have to be electric in most countries in Europe and UK and America. Um, but what does that actually mean? Well, it means two things. So first of all, we believe the majority of the production is actually going to be in Asia, especially for components. Um, but it also means the commodity intensity um, of global production and trade is going to increase. Uh, we don't have enough copper, nickel, and lithium in mines which are producing today. Hmm. And that means we need more investment. Um, there's plenty of stuff in the ground, but we're going to start seeing the ramp up. So I'm really looking for copper mines which can produce in years 25, 26. On the other hand of the scale, um, an industry which I'm really excited by is, again, the industrials in China. Um, China is really moving up the value chain. Lots of industries are localizing in China. There's some fantastic, great growth companies in that market. Um, we, we, we just bought a, a, a new stock called Milky Way, which is a great name. Um, they do chemical logistics in China. Um, they've got 0.5% market share. But if I look at the US market, this is a free player market. China hasn't been consolidated. It's still very nascent and really needs to improve the quality of distribution. But this company's got a technological edge. It's against what I call state-owned companies, so fairly big, modern-lived giants. It's been growing as revenue 40% per annum for the last five to seven years. And this year, it just doubled, um, and it's still only 0.5% of the overall market. So I think it can grow, pick a number, 40 50 60% over the next five years. There's many of these exciting small growth stories of two to $10 billion market caps in China, which we're very excited about. Okay. A lot of people think that investing in Asia is perhaps high risk. And you know, to some extent, we've seen that in 2021 with regulatory interference in China. But you know, are there any low risk opportunities for investors across Asia? It's, it's a funny question. When, when I look at Asia, having lived and worked in Asia and invested in Asia for such a long time, you get used to the volatility, you get used to the change. Um, do I see it risky? Do I see the, in the volatility that is where we make our money, that is the opportunity? Um, 
unlike the Western markets where a bull market cycle tends to be almost 10 years, maybe a bit longer, in Asia I tend to think that three to five years is that optimum investing time frame, which kind of roughly a full business market cycle. Um, you can have low risk investments, there's consumer staples, there's utilities, but it's not where I look. Um, I think by investing for growth and looking for those fastest growing companies, you can make far better returns. And if I look historically, that's really where you made the outsized money. It's not looking at the benchmark, it's not going for safety. In fact, if I was going to argue anything, you, you want safety elsewhere. Look for your safety in the developed markets. Look for Asia for growth. You're taking risk in these markets. Yeah. What's, what's your sort of view about the potential sort of slowdown that we're seeing in China's economic growth? And do you think actually that might negatively impact global growth if, if China sort of is not perhaps consuming as much commodities as people thought and so on? So I think the Chinese growth model is still slowing. Um, it's been slowing for the last 10 years, and I think it will continue to slow for the, the next 10 years. Um, and that will impact global growth. I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think roughly 80% of all global growth in the last is it decade or two decades has basically been China. Mm. You know, that's dramatic. Um, saying that, will China still be growing somewhere between 4 and 6% in real terms for the next 10 years? I think so, which is still going to be double at least Western growth. Um, making it still one of the biggest contributors to growth globally. What I think is more interesting is actually there's a number of countries from India to Nigeria to Indonesia to Vietnam, which are probably starting their own infrastructure-led growth models. Um, I think India is where China was back in the early 2000s in terms of per capita GDP, commodity intensity, about to ramp up. Now, it's not going to be a China, but it's probably going to be growing at 7 to 10%. Indonesia, again, is probably going to go 6 to 8%. Vietnam, maybe even a bit higher. Um, so very much it depends on what industries you're looking at, different commodity markets. Um, but if I take Asia as a whole, I think Asia as a whole is going to maintain its contribution to world GDP growth. Mm. Okay. And what, is, what do you think might happen in 2022? Are you quite optimistic about the outlook, or is it sort of perhaps time to be a bit more nervous about it? potentially making money or not? I, I, I say well, I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone yes. <laughs> one, two, five years into the future. Um, the reason why we're long-term investors, the reason why we spend a lot of time thinking about how the world's changing, looking at thematics, is to help us anticipate change and when it happens, embrace it quickly and adjust our portfolios. Um, my base case is that we're still on an economic recovery from the COVID-induced recession. Um, and that's got fits and starts, as, as we can see, with, as more COVID cases surge up. China slowly opens up over the next 12 months. So my guess is I'm not going to be back into China until 2023. But the economy from here is slowly improving. We're just starting to see a pickup in mortgage loans approvals, which is going to help the real estate market. Um, so I think definitely over the next 12 months, things improve. The question mark for my is the market's probably bottomed. How quickly is that improvement is the question mark that we'll grapple with over the next 12 months. Um, but definitely on a three to five year time horizon, I think things look a lot better. Ewan, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank today. you very much. Investing in individual stocks in Asia is trickier than the US or Europe, thanks to more limited transparency in, re in reporting, less liquidity and restrictions on foreign ownership. 
some platforms will only allow you to trade these markets, if at all, over the phone. However, a few of the big Chinese firms like Alibaba and Tencent have listings in the US. And there are a large number of both actively managed funds and passive exchange traded funds, which offer broad based and more selective exposures to Asian shares. Typically, Japan funds are in a category of their own, with most Asia-wide funds excluding the country. That concludes our whirlwind tour of global investment markets. We hope the insights and fund manager interviews have been helpful and helped spark your interest, and if so, encouraged you to do your own research. Thank you, Tom. We are recording this on Wednesday, a day before the majority of investors expect another rate hike from the Bank of England as they try to curb rising prices. We've also got a meeting of OPEC Plus underway as they um, as we speak, and they're expected to follow the path that's pretty much laid out in front of them, turning supply taps just a little more. But when you think that producers haven't been able to meet the targets already laid out because of workers having to isolate because of COVID and a whole range of technical issues. And of course, everyone's watching to see what happens in the Ukraine. There are a huge number of question marks. The cost of living is a massive issue and rising prices have been getting a mention in just about every financial update we've had over the last few weeks. And as people think about the money that they have in their pockets, many people's thoughts turn to their own investments, figuring out how they're performing. And for many people, their pension is the biggest investment they have, Tom. Yes, that's right. And pensions are also often the first step on people's investment journeys, particularly now we've got automatic enrolment in the workplace. But sometimes that means people end up with loads of different pots in different places, and it's quite easy to lose track of them. So as if by magic, the subject of this week's pension corner is consolidation. Indeed, yes. Julia sent this question. She says, I'm 45 years old and have worked in financial services since leaving university two decades ago. I've had five different employers and at each one I was offered a company pension. I've lost track of a couple of the pods. What's the best way to find them? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. It's going to be an, an increasingly common problem. So there's various different estimates as to as to how often people change jobs in their working lives. But the the Department for Work and Pensions a while ago suggested it might be eleven times. Um, now with automatic enrolment into the into workplace pensions, that means that each time you switch job, you could potentially create a new pension pot potentially with a new pension provider so if someone switches jobs 11 times in their working lives then they might end up with 11 different pension pots Um, it's a problem that's clearly going to increase over time so by 2035 the pensions policy institute estimates there could be as many as 27 million of these so-called deferred pension pots in the UK. So a problem in need of a solution. In the longer term, the government are looking at what's called pensions dashboards. Um, these are these will allow you to see all of your retirement pots in one place online. So that's a handy reform that's coming down the track, but they're not here yet. For now, the pension tracing service is a, a useful government tool that helps you to find your old scheme details, which can be used when you're when you're trying to consolidate your pensions. And Julia also asked, once these pots have been found, does it make sense to combine them? And if so, what are the risks? 
So it can make sense to combine your pensions in one place, lots of different potential benefits of doing that. So it can be easier to manage your, your pensions if they're all, all, in, all in one scheme rather than dotted about all over the place. You could potentially lower your costs as well. So particularly some older schemes can have higher charges than modern platforms, for example. You could move to somewhere that offers you a better service and you could also increase the choice that you have as well so you could increase the improve both the choice of your investments and the the retirement income options that you have as well now that does come with a, a word of warning so if you've got any in particular old style pensions so pensions perhaps from the the 1990s or early 2000s you should check there aren't any valuable benefits attached to those pensions which you may lose um, or any exit charges which could be applied which could erode the value of your fund your existing provider should be able to tell you if this is the case um, once you've checked that and you've done that process the, the the process of transferring your pension should be relatively straightforward although the amount of time it will take will depend on the provider giving up the assets and also the the type of assets you hold but usually it should just be between two and four weeks um, you'll need to choose a provider who you want to consolidate your pensions with and you'll need to get the details of the pension or pensions you want to transfer over once you've provided the relevant details to your new provider they should be able to do all the legwork for you so it should be a relatively straightforward process thanks tom um, now, Bitcoin has fallen by 20% in the first month of this year alone, highlighting the extreme volatility of this asset class. Laith caught up with AJ Bell's chief investment officer, Kevin Doran, to talk about the future and the risks of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. 2021 was another roller coaster year for Bitcoin, with the world's best known cryptocurrency trading at below $30,000 at one point, but also hitting a fresh high of almost $70,000. Last couple of months haven't been kind, though. Bitcoin has shed over a third of its value. So is the crypto party finally staggering towards a grisly end, or is it just getting started? Joining me today to talk all things crypto is AJ Bell's chief investment officer, Kevin Doran. Kevin, welcome to the pod. Hey, Leif. Good to see you. Good, good, good to have you on. And and just stepping back a bit, if we can, from from looking at kind of price movements, let's let's start with basics. What is crypto? How should we think about it? It's called a cryptocurrency, but it doesn't really behave like a currency. So, how, how do you see it? Oh, you, you've you've hit the nail on the head. They really come to, come to the to the to the punch nice and quickly. It's not a currency. You know, if you looked at what a currency and what money is supposed to do. Uh, there's five or six different things you'd expect it to do, of which, to be honest, Bitcoin does them, some of them really, really well. Store of value um, is, is questionable, but with divisibility, portability. Uh, but where it really falls down is exactly what you've just been saying there. You have that variability in the price on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis. You know, we, we started this podcast probably about 43,000. If you're listening to this podcast, go and check the price. It's probably <laughs> not 43,000. Um, but the other one is acceptability. And until you've got global acceptability for any currency, um, which requires an, an act of faith, uh, I don't think you could legitimately call crypto a currency. And I think what you should be thinking about when it comes to crypto assets is they're crypto commodities. And once you get into that mindset of thinking it as a commodity, a lot of what happens in the crypto world really makes sense. And we've been doing this for millennia in the gold markets. 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is it is called digital gold, um, which itself is volatile. I guess you know, looking at the kind of price movements that we've seen in Bitcoin, is there any way to make any sense of them? I mean, how I mean, how high, how low could it go, and and how do you even go about valuing something like cryptocurrency or, or as you say, a crypto commodity? Uh, I, I guess just it depends on which school you fall into. So if you fall into the uh, you know, almost conspiracy theory-esque school of investments, which is, you know, fiat currencies are the worst thing that's ever been invented. And I'm not going to try and defend fiat currencies and particularly post, you know, the Nixon shock. If you fall into that school, well, this is the only asset class that can, can protect you from nefarious tyrannical governments, uh, in which case, you know, it displaces gold's role in, in investment portfolios only 21 million coins will ever be kind of mined when it comes to Bitcoin. And therefore, you can value this thing at 100,000. So that's obviously the bull case. On a day-to-day basis, because it has no cash flows whatsoever, the only thing you can do to value this is try to use charts. Uh, now, I personally wouldn't advocate doing any investment strategy based on charts, which some people do. Uh, you know, So on a minute-by-minute or day-to-day basis, you can maybe try to second guess what some other picture someone else will see in these charts. Me personally, how I value uh, crypto commodities and Bitcoin in particular, you can go back to Adam Smith. You know, so Adam Smith told us in Wealth of Nations how to value any commodity and the price of any commodity will gravitate towards its marginal cost of production. Bitcoin is basically fungible with with electricity. So you convert electricity into Bitcoins. That's effectively what's taking place here. And so if you look at the marginal cost of production of a new Bitcoin, uh, although I know the mint of that six and a quarter per block, but if you look at the marginal cost of that and then look at when most Bitcoins are actually minted, used to be China and the US, now it's Kazakhstan and the US, the cost of electricity, that conversion cost comes to about three to $4,000 and so the the kind of the sensible price for for a Bitcoin right now would be between three and four thousand dollars. And of course, as I said before, here we are trading at over forty thousand dollars. It's in excess of ninety ninety five percent overvalued. I wouldn't go anywhere near it. Yeah. So I mean that that kind of uh, I mean that's a really interesting way of looking at it, and and certainly kind of suggests um, bubble like um, characteristics. Um, I think. I mean, you know, looking looking sort of deeper into cryptocurrencies, I suppose Bitcoin is the one that everybody has has heard of. But I mean, just looking at some of the kind of crypto websites out there, you know, there there are nine thousand listed on some of them. I mean, you know, how do these all work? I mean, are they all the same, or or are some better than others? There are different classes of, of cryptocurrency, but you know, kind of if you take it up a level of abstraction. It's almost like saying which is the best religion, because every one of these and money is to, to a certain extent. It's just that we've been believing in money for a lot longer than we have cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, it's an act of faith, and so we're now into the realms of which is the best religion. And now, before you know it, you're constructing a Monty Python sketch. Yeah, um, yeah. Bitcoin, Bitcoin's obviously the one that you know, everyone knows. It's it's the daddy of the cryptos. Ether is interesting. I guess it's got more use cases. You can write contracts with smart contracts with it. Um, but then you know you get into the realms of some of the joke coins, so Doggy Coin, Shibu. Uh, my favorite is the useless Ethereum token, 
Uh, it's got a okay. really interesting token. <laughs> uh, and then uh, more, I guess, more inter- interestingly, and perhaps where the, where the next evolution of crypto goes is is the stable coins, the likes of Tether, etc. And that takes us into the world of hypothesizing about you know central bank digital currencies. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's that's um, quite a telling analogy. I think the whole religion thing, because a lot of the a lot of these kind of cryptos are built on on communities, aren't they? And kind yeah. of community, communities mm-hmm. buying into them. So, you know, there 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 is a bit of a, a tie up there. Um, I mean, one of the things that's been been levelled at at the cryptocurrency market is, you know, as you were saying, it kind of takes a certain amount of electricity to generate these things, and obviously that has you know, a certain carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Now we're in a world where, you know, kind of ESG investing, ESG credentials are very important in the corporate world. You know, how important that is, is that for cryptocurrency? I mean, do, do crypto traders, the people sitting in the front, front of their charts actually care about that? Is that something that anyone thinking about buying one of these should be concerned about? Um, if you are concerned about those things, yes, you, sh- you ought to be concerned but I don't think this is specifically unique to, to crypto world. You know, uh, you know, let's put some numbers on that. The crypto kind of blockchain technology and the electricity it uses for mining comes in about the electricity generation of Argentina. Okay. But it, and it has no social utility whatsoever. Hmm. But then again, back to you know, our analogy with gold, nor does gold. So look at the gold industry. Yeah. We spend inordinate amounts of money digging gold up in let's get in South Africa, in order to transport it and bury it underground in Switzerland. There's no social utility in, in that in that industry whatsoever. And, you know, the, the electricity usage that goes along with crypto mining is analogous to what we're doing in the gold industry again. Okay. And, and I mean, you mentioned central bank digital currencies there. Looking forward, you know, I mean, can you just give us a, a bit of a flavor of what they are? Um, you know, how, I guess how they compare with cryptocurrencies, and how they may, might interact with, with you know, if the central banks across the globe do start launching these things, does that actually damage the appeal of cryptocurrencies? Uh, okay, so there's two, two elements. Now, the first one I think we ought to address is the reason why I don't think cryptocurrencies, crypto commodities, will gain traction throughout the whole of society is. Whilst we can't regulate the use of crypto within cyberspace, you can patrol the perimeter of cyberspace. So the interface between the real world and the cyber world is where governments can set laws. And you know, we've seen the likes of China, which has banned all mining, etc. You're trying to ban mining is, is a bit pointless, if you ask me. But you can patrol the perimeter between cyberspace and the real world. And central banks and, and central governments are very strongly incentivized to make sure that we don't go into a crypto world. Because if you own your own currency, you've got access to this thing called seniorage. And seniorage is exceptionally powerful. That's why you know, a lot of nations won't give up their own currency. It's why a lot of the European nations did the wrong thing of joining the euro. You don't give up seniorage uh, without, without a fight. And the central bank digital currency allows us to make this progression into you know into a crypto world and digital currencies, but it allows the central government to retain its control of seniorage, uh, and that's why I think you know the next iteration of this will be the development of central bank digital currencies. But they come with the downfalls as well. Uh, you know, there's there's a ruling from the from the House of Lords coming shortly, um, 
And one of the downfalls of a central bank digital currency, you might say it's a great thing if you're a central bank, you could get to see every single transaction in your economy happening in real time. Imagine kind of having that access of information uh, compared to what we do now, which is the Bank of England send people out into the economy to do surveys of what people are doing with their money. So that would be really powerful. But of course, with great power comes great responsibility. And you know, if you've got that level of access to, into people's lives, what would a nefarious government do with that sort of data? So that's a really interesting debate that will play out over the next couple of years as we potentially go into this world of central bank digital currencies. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a kind of giant government uh, Tesco club card where they can kind of monitor <laughs> everything that you're doing, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm sure that'll be a really interesting space to watch, actually. I mean, I, I get the overall impression um, um, Kevin, that kind of generally you're obviously kind of a, a bit sceptical about about cryptos, particularly buying at this level. Mm-hmm. I mean, as as an investor, as someone who invests across a range of asset classes, can you can you just say is there anything that could happen in in the kind of market or the way things develop that could persuade you to to invest in crypto? And and also, I guess, what would you say to to listeners who have bought crypto already or or are now thinking about buying crypto? Well, you know, I'll answer the second one first, which is, as I've said before, you, a lot of these are effectively small-scale religions. I would never turn up at someone's house and try and tell them that their God doesn't exist. So you know, I, I, I wouldn't engage in that sort of conversation. Me personally, you're, you're right, you're, you've probably detected I, I am sceptical. Um, would I buy crypto if it was trading at $2,000? Possibly. But if it went from $40,000 to $2,000, the game's over. Um, so you could argue maybe I'm just too late. What I can guarantee is it won't, re- won't repeat the returns that we've seen in the past decade and the next 10 years. Uh, and again, I come back to this gold analogy of gold, peak, oh, gold last peaked in 1980. In the subsequent 42 years, it's underperformed inflation. And I think that's probably the return profiles that you get out of Bitcoin if indeed Bitcoin still exists in 42 years now. Great. Well, I think um, I think we've covered a lot of ground there, put, put, put the kind of crypto party to bed. So um, all that remains to do is to say thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. Good to speak to you, Leif. Thank you, Leif. I told you it was a packed podcast, but no Money and Markets pod would be complete without a visit to Jenny Owen. Not a big red chair, but laptop craziness. And this week's story has frankly made me green with envy. Yeah, no matter how hard I try it, I'm back talking about coins. But this is a particularly special one, as a retired metal detectorist found out recently. Uh, Michael from Devon has uh, he'd given up gold hunting a decade ago, but he returned to the hobby after being pestered by his kids to give it another go in September. He was scanning over a bit of farmland near his home with the farmer's permission and stumbled upon a life-changing find, an unusual edition of England's oldest gold coin from the 13th century. Buried four inches below the ground and only 0.8 inches in diameter, He'd found a Henry III gold penny, and when it went to auction, it fetched a huge £648,000. The coin was minted around 1257 by William of Gloucester, with gold imported from North Africa, and Michael had no clue of its rarity until he put a photo of it on social media, uh, where it was spotted by a specialist at a London auctioneer. 
um, only about 52,000 of the coins were minted, and most were melted down following the king's death in 1272. Nowadays, only eight coins are known to exist, with most of them in museums. The auction price has made the penny the most valuable single coin find in Britain and the most expensive medieval English coin sold at auction. And you'll be glad to hear that Michael split the profits with the farmer. Oh, happy ending. I, yeah, well, I'm jealous because my husband uh, has a metal detector and he goes out sometimes with my eldest daughter and all they've come back with are loads and loads and loads of bits of clay pipe. We have bits of clay pipe everywhere, and I'm just not sure that it's going to fetch the same price at auction. It's Devon no. farmland. That's where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. Um, so with that, that's all for this week's Money Markets podcast. Next week, I'll be joined by Laura Souter and Dan Coatesworth heading off to chat with the guys from the Artemis Positive Future Fund. So make sure you set your alarm. There is still time to enter our competition to win a pair of Apple AirPods to improve your listening experience and to celebrate the fact that we have surpassed that one million download mark. You can find details on Twitter and Instagram. Just take a look back at our posts. And don't forget, we really do love to hear from you about absolutely anything. But for now, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.